Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, we uh, felt like a really good weekend. We were able to get uh, some runs, some rides in, and then also watch a lot of racing. We consumed a lot of racing. Hopefully, everyone got a chance to watch. There was the World Cup uh, for mountain biking in Brazil, which is still, I think, available for you know replay on RedBull.tv. And then we also watched the first of the Lifetime Grand Prix. This is that North American gravel slash mountain bike series. Uh, which was great too. It was just great to see everyone back racing and some fans even in the stands. Yeah, yeah, really exciting races. Cannot recommend going back and watching the World Cups enough. Um, We'll have spoilers in our episode that's going to come out Friday, uh, but... Since it is still early in the week, we'll say no spoilers and definitely get to get to watch that if you can. But two just phenomenal races mm-hmm. uh, and Lifetime Grand Prix. Awesome. Really interesting new series in the U.S. Uh, I think the coverage is only going to get better and better. I think we're, we're still figuring out how to cover gravel racing. I think it's a very tricky thing for for videographers and drones and potentially helicopters at some point there's talk of helicopters we'll say Um, so i'm very excited to see how that continues but definitely really cool to see that series starting and you know just more more attention on some different types of racing different racers in the u.s okay yeah it was it was good good to watch good to be back watching these things and and that they're happening yeah and i was super excited today's guest alexi vermulen some of you may know from the lifetime grand prix series he finished ninth uh, this weekend in C- at sea otter uh, you may also know him arguably better based on sir willie the wiener his english cream dachshund uh who is if you just if you don't know him but you know dw our dachshund just picture our our dachshund as a blonde and you get sir willie uh alexi is very well known as uh the guy who rides with his dachshund in his backpack in fact it's inspired peter we do own the same backpack peter's gonna take dw out for a ride today we'll see how it goes uh, yeah, I actually found Alexi over a year ago based solely on that fact. Uh, I, I found the, the dachshund and him as I was working on an article for Bike Rumor, actually. And uh, we kind of became dachshund owning buddies from that. And then he's actually on the jukebox cycling uh, team that I work with. I do content for. So if you ever go to jukeboxcycling.com on the blog, that's all stuff from me. Uh, tons of cool stuff with a bunch of interesting riders doing very interesting things from downhill to gravel to track. Uh, so yeah, Alexi is on that team and we've gotten to talk a bunch of times and I love talking to him. I've never met any other cyclist who is as into organization and lists and that kind of thing as much as Alexi is. And Everyone who's listening to this knows that I am equally obsessed with those things. He's he's shown me pictures of his garage and how organized it is. And man, I have garage envy. 
I also wish I had a garage, but well, you know, it doesn't even have to be organized. <laughs> it's true, really. We'll we'll take anything. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a really fun conversation talking about how he went from racing on the road as a very young athlete to sort of now this this new career that he's carving out for himself, and also the project that he works on uh, with Ryan Petrie from the ground up, where they actually bring sort of quote unquote normal people to race at Leadville, uh, which yikes <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's a huge undertaking and, and really where where, do, where is that where do people follow that is that on uh from the ground up.com he actually they actually made it into a small youtube series so oh, they okay. had a cool series of i think six episodes from last year and they're working on season two right now okay uh yeah it's it's a really cool project and it, i think it's really interesting just to see what it looks like to to have you know, again, quote unquote, normal people tackling these big adventures. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Make sure you follow if you're on Instagram, give Alexi and Sir Willie uh, separate accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they keep their Instagram separate because uh, it's just great content. It really is. I mean, what else it, are you there for? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of the combination of everything we love, dachshunds, bikes. Uh, yeah. And I mean, honestly, one big thing we talk about in this episode is the whole the season as a whole the lifetime grand prix alone is six big races that are scattered throughout the u.s Uh, a lot of travel involved with that but then on top of that you can't just race those races Uh, you have other commitments other sponsor commitments you do need some other races thrown in there Um, you know while it is six races and that's a lot it's also six races spread out from now till the end of october so pretty big span there and actually a really interesting puzzle to solve for as far as how to peak for what races how to stay healthy for what races i mean we actually saw at sea otter i think there were a few people in the lifetime grand prix who didn't start who used that as their uh everyone gets like one race that'll get dropped from the results Mm. and a lot of people had to use it for illness or other reasons so you only get one of those right so if you've already had to like skip that first race yeah, I guess you're, you're, you're committed. Get out of jail cards gone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of travel. Um, and I think actually we talk a little bit about how to pack for travel, how to prep for travel, what the packing list looks like. And we have also been in travel mode ourselves lately. So I think this is a perfect time to give a quick shout out to our new sponsor, Athletic Greens. They have the AG1 supplement uh, and they do have travel packs. And holy moly, uh, these travel packs have been really helpful in this past week. Uh, we're, we're down visiting my parents. And to be honest, when we're down here in New Jersey, it is very tempting for me to get out of all of the healthy habits that I've taken so long to develop. Um, yeah, super easy to just drink a ton of coffee, to skip my morning core, to do all of those things. And for me, just having those packets out on the counter, starting the day with mixing up the the AG1 in water and chugging that right when I wake up really is my good reminder. It's certainly hard when you're traveling because you, know, you can't get the food you're maybe used to the local market or the veggie, you know, veggie place you get, or maybe you get a delivery box or whatever you get at home. As we start traveling more, whether that's to a training camp, to a race, work travels coming back and conferences, conferences are probably the worst thing as far as, you know, you just live on coffee and free samples all day. So sometimes having these uh, habits that almost travel with you and are a good start to the day so that we, we like our morning core in the hotel room and then something like AG1 is perfect because it sort of helps you, you know, they call it daily insurance, a little bit of insurance while you're away and not able to, you know, eat your usual uh, really solid diet. Yeah. So it's hitting sort of all of your key vitamins, minerals, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens. There's just 
all of the good stuff in it. What I actually really love about AG1 is this is, I think, the 53rd iteration of the original product, Athletic Greens. Uh, so since they developed it, they every every year, sometimes multiple times a year, they're making new iterations on it just based on what's coming out in the research, uh, which I really appreciate because, I mean, stuff like this is just changing so much so quickly. And with clients, you know, whenever we're looking at something like a whey protein or any sort of supplement, we're looking, you know, for that third-party validation, something like a NSF rating, which AG1 has this as well. And then it also is vegan, if that matters for you, and then also gluten-free. So those, you know, these great things that we're sort of looking for in a supplement uh, are certainly part of this as well. Yeah, not a lot of artificial or no artificial chemical, blah, 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 anything like that. And it actually tastes really good. And let me tell you, I've tried so many different greens powder powders over the years, and I found a couple that tasted tolerable. This is the first one where I'm like, oh, this is actually a pleasant thing to drink in the morning. It's often a balance. Like it tastes okay, but then why does it, you know, it's yeah. because they've added a lot of sugar or something like that, right? Yeah, so. for sure. Um, and I do know, you know, these are not super cheap supplements, but A, NSF supplements literally never are. Uh, to get stuff that actually is third-party tested actually is what it says it is. Uh, you know what? They're just not cheap. Like end of story. Right. And I like too that, you know, a lot of clients will end up with, you know, a fish oil, you know, maybe some sort of vitamin or a multivitamin. And then, you know, maybe there's something else on top of that. So this is sort of all those things. If you start doing the math on it, it's nice because it's simple. It's from one source, NSF. Uh, and so you're not having to find all these different things as well. Yeah. So highly, highly recommend checking it out. And to make that easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which by the way, tastes delicious, uh, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash Molly H. That is athleticgreens.com backslash Molly H to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And yes, that is athleticgreens.com backslash Molly H because we thought consummate was way too hard to spell. So there you have it. Uh, definitely check that out. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know if it's helping you with, with your daily routines, healthy habits, etc. And let's get into this episode with Alexi Vermeulen. Enjoy. Alexi, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. How's it going? Good. I've been waiting for this call for like three, four, five weeks. <laughs> I'm so excited to, to chat about all things. I feel like I got excited to have you on, not just like with your cycling and your multidisciplinary cycling thing, but I talked to you back in January for a cross-country ski piece that I did for Bicycling Magazine. And I was like, oh, right. This is a guy who knows multiple sports. So how did you, how did this all come about? What's your athletic bio background? What's like the elevator pitch here? Yeah. Um, I guess in quick terms at now at 27, I feel like my life has been cycling, but up until I started racing, it was very much four or five dimensional. Um, my grandfather raced in Holland before he immigrated to Canada after the war, which is kind of how I got on a bike in the first place. We started going on rides. It's like a normal thing. And then got into kids triathlons and I like the cycling portion, but up until that point, and, you know, I played ice hockey, cross country skied, ran cross country. I mean, just about any other thing I could do was never really good at ball sports. I didn't do any of that. No football, no baseball. Oh, I was a little, little kids pitch team, but uh, no basketball. And, but yeah, just kind of, I think fell into the love of sports that had a team, but also had an individual aspect. I think I enjoyed pushing myself, but also having that camaraderie. Mm -hmm. uh, really see that in ice hockey or cross country, for example. Um, 
but in the end, when push came to shove, like sophomore year of high school, I just cycling gave me more. I was able to travel the world. I was able to see more on a bike. If when I, when I got off school and I got to go for a ride, um, I still love running, but even if you go trail running, you just, you're stuck in a little circle sometimes, unless you do crazy things like run a hundred miles. Unless. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You and, uh, you and Peter, my husband slash co-host have sort of a similar backstory with like ice hockey and stuff, because you're both from, from the North here. You you're Michigan. He's Ontario. Um, now he had to stop because he got too many concussions in ice hockey. Uh, did, w- was that an issue for you or did you like, r- you know, get through it unscathed? <laughs> I knock on wood have had zero confirmed concussions. Um, oh my God. I feel like we need to edit that out. That can't be in. We just have to not, yeah, I, I everyone knock. listening, knock on wood right now. Uh, no, I, um, yeah, no, that wasn't my issue in hockey. I don't think I was big enough. I was fast, but I also just wasn't like, this sounds very conceited at times, but I, I knew there was a chance to do more in running or cycling. Mm-hmm. So ice hockey was the first thing to finish. I loved it. And that would, if I had a choice to be like, I want to be pro in one sport, it would still be ice hockey. Like that is the sport I watch. I love watching no matter who's playing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of injuries, a lot of very gruesome injuries in hockey. And I would still say that hockey is one of the more breeds some of the toughest athletes. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, okay. So you got into cycling. Cycling was the the pick walk us through just sort of like your, your early intro into road racing and kind of to where you are now, because it's been, you know, a, a shortish journey as you're only 27, but still kind I'm of old. a long road to get here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of started with that, those rides with my grandfather, um, just like, those are the first like rides that I remember is on like a Trek branded 24 inch bike wheeled bike that I was like borrowing from a bike shop. Um, and kind of grew, I'd say the, like the first big pitch was I did like a, after some of those kids tries did like a local criterium. Um, and I think I got second, but I just kind of enjoyed it. And it was one of those moments my parents have always been really good about this where they just, they didn't push me at all, but they gave me the means to learn more about it. So they hired a guy who is still my coach to this day, which is hilarious. No way. Yeah, never, never changed coaches. Um, there's been periods where like he was less involved, but, um, hired Lucas, who's cat two racer, more of a ski racer in his background, uh, grew up in Wisconsin, done the Berkey all the time. And this is more just not as a coach at that point, but as a, Hey, so you're doing this running and hockey, this is really helping you maybe jump on your bike. These times after those, maybe do this kind of interval, what kind of races do you want to do? Oh, these are the races that are near us. He was more, he's in the Ann Arbor Velo Club, which is a club near me. Um, so he just kind of helped like tie things together and answer questions I didn't understand, um, whether it be lingo or gearing or anything else. Um, and then when I was racing age 14, we drove to nationals because we could, it's Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. And it's more literally just to see what it's like, like how intense is quote unquote, the top end of the sport for that age. Mm-hmm. Um, it was eye opening. I absolutely got my butt kicked. Um, and I went home, not discouraged, but like, okay, so what happens when I want to go back to do this next year? Um, 
and so that was that was that was kind of the beginning that I remember like okay let's take a step and so that's when I stopped playing hockey I still ran cross country because um, the seasons were kind of different um, and I wanted that team feeling still uh, and then the next year uh, I went back to nationals and finished fifth in the time trial um, and so that year obviously when I came back from the first nationals just kind of talked to Lucas a little more a little more on the bike instead of playing hockey doing everything else you know I was a freshman at that point. Um, and then a year later, I was a sophomore in high school. Um, I, uh, won nationals as a junior seven at the, at the young age of juniors. So 17, I run the, won the road race. Um, and that is when I think like things just really opened up. Obviously cycling is a very expensive sport. Um, and there some, somewhat of a, a lot of different pathways to get to the top, um, but I just, I was able to go race in Europe with the national team. Um, and it was just luck, luck of the draw that the type of racing that happens in Europe with all these kermesses and like all out racing, like if you're not at the front, you're out the back. I just, I thrived on that. I loved it. I loved <laughs> racing flat out. Um, and so I did really well. I mean, my parents gave me 700 euro to go over with and I ended up going back with like 14. They let me keep it all. It's like the best, the first time you earn money, right? You're earning like 50 euro to win some of these races. Oh, that's uh, awesome. No, wait, having your grandpa, having been like, uh, you know, in cycling in Europe, like, do you feel like that actually helped you kind of with the Euro scene or not it, at all? Unfortunately, um, he, he was always one of those things that I like those in those hard moments that you think about, he was one of those things, but he died of cancer in 2009. Oh. So right before I was like finding my love for the sport if that makes sense okay, like, yeah. even on rides. Right. But it, it was never something where we could like talk tactics or talk anything else. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of changed mm -hmm. how much I would have been involved with him on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been really interesting to hear the the comparison for sure. Yeah. No, he's watching from above. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you're over there, you've got your, you've won your first 700 <laughs> or 1400 euros here. Um, and you just keep doing this road thing and keep, it seems like you just kept stepping up season after season. Yeah. I kept stepping up, but I kept like, user cycling used to have like a legit pipeline. You could hit these different things. And I literally had that on my ceiling, like cross one off, like regional races. Right. And then like national championship and then like win a national championship and then go to Europe. And okay, um, wait, literally on your ceiling, like you would ceiling, see that yes. when you went to sleep. Yeah. I wish I could still find it. They obviously they deleted it off because it like had Lance Armstrong in your race series and all these things they don't condone on anymore, obviously, but it was literally a pipeline that ended up in the world tour and how you got there. Um, and so I crossed things off. And so a lot of those steps, you know, were once you did the national championship, went to Europe, the next step was going to the world championships. And that first year, just because I did so well, that type of racing fit me, I got to go to the world championships. And it was again, that situation of like, back in seven Springs, Pennsylvania, different worlds right now. I'm racing the world championships, not the national championships, but like, holy shit. Whoa. <laughs> um, we're talking like seven Springs of 2007 and national and world championships. The first world championships I did was in Denmark in 2011. And I think bigger than me racing it, this might sound weird, was just seeing the people you saw clash on TV, right? Like I was standing on the hill watching Cancellara sprint versus Cavendish you know, up the hill, like it, it was just kind of surrealizing, like, like we're racing on the same course as these people, like that's epic. Mm -hmm. um, 
as you can imagine, got my butt kicked on that, went home, kept training, um, kind of got to do the same thing for a longer period the next year, which was my second year as a junior. So I was racing age 18, um, went back to the national team, raced more races, went to the world championships in Valkenburg that year in Holland. Um, and that's when, when that first big step in cycling happens, um, I, and I luckily had a, a good amount of options, uh, to make another 23 jump. So I debated between live strong, but loved the racing in Europe. So I ended up signing with what was new at the time that year, the new BMC development team. Ooh, which and was, in retrospect, in retrospect, really good timing on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really great timing. And it was also just, it was full. I mean, it's still probably the most, one of the most professional teams I've been on. Like, even though it was a development team, it was amateur. It was never pro Conti. It was never anything. People always ask like, Oh, haven't you raced like Redlands and all that? And I never got a chance to like, but I also, I loved choosing BMC because it felt like home, if that makes sense. Right. Like I felt like it was my heritage and I loved racing in Europe and I loved living in Europe. Um, and that was the first moment, like I went from spending like a supervised three to seven months in Europe as a junior to like, Hey, you can live here for like eight to nine, 10 months, kind of unsupervised. You're an adult now, quote unquote, you know, my friends are going off to college and I'm doing that. And that was also part of the conversation was I had to convince my parents that I was signing for a premier team that actually had a pathway to making an actual living. So at that point, I think it was making 15 grand when I signed my first contract, which is like as an 18 year old, you're obviously stoked. Your friends are off spending money on college. What but, I made for my first magazine job. So yeah. <laughs> no, but, and you also know that like your, your parents are kind of like, yeah, you're deferring college. Like, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but they, they were understanding and they, they made me apply to all the schools I wanted to go to and defer for at least one. Um, and I deferred through that contract until I got another one with BMC. Uh, so I raced three years with BMC and then got a chance to step up to the world tour. And that was like, I just eye opening. I mean, like, that whole like Cavendish Cancellara situation once again, like everyone always talks about it and you dream about it and you talk about it again, but it never, you never think you're actually going to get that call unless mm -hmm. you're winning everything. Right. Which most people in the U S are never winning everything in cycling. Yeah. So it goes from watching them at worlds to Holy crap. You're in those races now. <laughs> how, how did that feel? And I mean, you know, you're still pretty young at this point. How, how does it feel watching all of your friends doing the college thing? And, you know, you're on this completely other pathway. Do you have moments of like freaking out about it? Or are you pretty just like, this is what I'm doing. At that point? No, I think it was also quite a privileged approach, right. Where I was, I never missed a step. Like, I feel like in, in sports, there's a lot of, a lot of times there's a, a hardship or something else. Like I trained hard. Um, part of it was luck. And I think I put myself in the right place at the right times and had the right results. But each of those steps when I leaped was there. Um, when I leapt was there. So it was never, I don't think I ever felt like I was missing out on something. As I got a little older and I was in the world tour and settled in and realized, okay, this is my job. That's when I started thinking about like, Hey, where am I? Am I going to do this for the next 15 years? Do I not want to? What do I like about it? You know, all those things pop up when it's, you've got to the place you've been thinking about that timeline on top of your bed. Like you got to the end of the pipeline and now what's that next step? You, you've made all the jumps. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't miss out. Um, I, but I definitely was trying to figure out where I belonged in the sport for mm -hmm. that entire period. Yeah. Um, it was also kind of a weird situation going in. I haven't talked about this that much, but I, my third year on BMC, 
was, I was having a, a great year, um, feeling really good. And I, in July after, um, Lavenier, which is like the big under 23, um, quote unquote, small tour de France, um, I crashed and broke my scaphoid two kilometers into a race in Italy. Um, and that was what, that was the year the world was in America. So I was like devastated. Went back, got surgery, was kind of like, okay, season's over. This is like September, you know, I'll pack it up, start early, get a head start on my last, last season under 23. And in that depth is when I got the email from Lotto. They didn't know I'd broken my wrist. No one knew anything else. Right. So I very quickly like has started having that conversation and went full on with training to see if I could still race the world championships. Um, it was just an interesting, like it came right at that moment that I did need something, um, mm -hmm. and put me back in position to even be ready to be at that level come January. Um, I didn't race the world championships, but it was just like that forced, like, okay, well, I should probably start training and try and not just sit here on my ass and sorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, man. yeah, this is an interesting pathway to like this dream goal you've had for a long time. Yeah. Okay. So at what point does the dream goal, these world tour teams, at what point does that dream goal stop? being the dream because clearly it's not what you're doing now. Yeah. No, I don't think it was ever wasn't the dream. I started to quantify and this sounds very I don't know the word, but I very much compared what you get paid up there versus what the risks are. Um I had I guess it is still a dream. I had I had aspirations to be a GC leader and when I realized that wasn't going to happen I think I started thinking about is what I'm making worth the, worth the risk, right? You, I mean, we see this all the time that cycling is somewhat like F1 in terms of um, injuries and death. Like when you look at death rates in pro, pro sports, yet mm -hmm. paid how much less? Yeah, right. like, you, don't even, like, you, you don't even need to know cycling or F1 to know how much less it is, right? Um, and we are descending mountains with people you can't speak the same language with and old Italian grandmas who decide they're going to leave to go get the groceries when we're descending down. And that's just a scary, scary thing. And I had a lot of those moments and I loved everything about what I was doing. I loved Europe. I loved the racing, but at some point I couldn't take the risk. And so when push came to shove and my contract came to an end and my only option was a pay cut, I couldn't justify it at all. Mm -hmm. And I think I struggled with that for like the next half year. Like, did I make the right choice? And you know, in the moment you make the choice, it's gone, right? Like, I mean, there's barely yeah. any spots in the world tour to begin with. Um, and I also had today to say it was completely my decision because the reality is we all know how those things go and it's always churning. Um, but it's a very, from when I, my contract ended December of 2017 to like May of 2018, I kind of like, went on this continental team and was like, Oh, actually I do still want to keep racing road. And then very quickly realized at one point that I was like, no, I'm done with this. And then it was just figuring out what existed beyond. Like, do I want to keep racing a bike? Do I want, I was, I was lucky enough to have options through bike companies to go like work real desk jobs, right. Normal stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Having not gone to college, but I kind of always wanted to go to school, but what I had applied to go to school for was kind of pre-med and I didn't really want to do that anymore timeline also seemed crazy. Um, 
And so like at the end of 2018, I kind of realized I was like, I want to race on the dirt. I don't know what that means. Um, I convinced Bianchi and a couple other companies to kind of set contracts on the precedent of me finishing top three Iceman, which is one of the biggest mountain bike races in the nation, which didn't really prove anything. It was just proving of a concept that I still was racing at the highest level. Um, ended up signing with Bianchi, who I had a relationship with from Lotto um, because they had a World Cup team. And that was the, the dream at that point. Um, quick, that World Cup team went bye-bye later that year, but also quickly realized that World Cup was the exact was the same thing as road, just on a different bike, and slowly started making the relationships I have now, um, and realizing how special that could be. Whether it was, you know, affecting community at a kids ride at a local race, like Iceman's a local race for me. I'm born in Michigan, right? So, like working with Shimano and doing a kids ride there, or you know, going around to some of these events and just seeing that like, people enjoy being on bikes and it's mm-hmm. not you know, racing at this highest level or risking anything to I guess to make money at it or to enjoy it. Um, and so I think it just kind of kept trickling down. I mean, that first year I was back and it, I don't talk with this very much either, but like that first year I came back, I left the world tour with, with a very real salary back to 15 grand again, living in yeah. my parents' house kind of like, okay, we are, we are at start and go. Like, what are we spent the whole 15 grand? Um, like just traveling and racing that year. Um, and it's, it just like kind of kept turning where you convince more people that, you know, cycling is this, this outdoor inclusive industry. It just, you have to, it needs to change. And I think that change happened a lot during COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I did want to get into gravel and training and all those fun things, but you brought up community. So we're going to, we're going to jump around and we're going to go straight into from the ground up. So quickly, like kind of doing the Wayne's world, like fast forward here, like, uh, you know, you've, you've not only managed to, you know, kind of put together a really good gravel program for yourself, where you are kind of getting to do all of these huge races, but you also started from the ground up with a friend. So can you talk about what that is and how that kind of applies to this whole community? Let's get more people on bikes concept. Yeah, no, I mean, I think also when you just talk about financial stuff, I am, I say this in, in pitches all the time that from the ground up in a sense of what athletes offer to companies is way more valuable than most of the things I offer as a professional bike racer. And I think that's almost comical when you think of this is three normal people just taking on a bike race. Um, but no, I moved, uh, my girlfriend works for Wahoo as an interface designer. Um, we moved to Boulder in July of 2020. Uh, so middle of COVID. Or beginning of COVID at this point, I guess. Um, yeah, who, who knows where we want to kind of put that in the COVID uh, timeline here. Um, and I had a friend, Ryan Petrie, and uh, we'd met a couple times more just in, Instagram acquaintances as you are in, in the in this sport because it's awesome. You just kind of meet people. But he was like, hey, I'm going to ride. Um, my in-laws have a place in Crested Butte. I'm going to ride. I have this, this route that goes over, you know, seven of the big old mining passes. Um, it's a little epic, but I'm going to ride it in three days if you want to do it at the end of July. So I was like, I'd been in Boulder for like two and a half weeks. And I was like, yeah, screw it. Like, why not? It was Obviously. Um, so it was like 300 and some miles and like 30,000 feet. So about was 10 hour days. There's a lot of time to talk to someone, especially someone you didn't know. Um, and, you know, it first starts off as small talk as anything does and slowly goes into 
why we are where we are and what we think we've done well and what hasn't gone well and where we think the sport can go. And obviously everyone has opinions. I myself has have a lot of opinions. I'm very judgmental. Um, and I, I just kind of started talking to him about the way that I saw the sport and how selfish it was. And I, I sometimes try not to talk about this that much, but this seems like a great place to do it is that I most athletes in cycling, this is kind of changing now, think they give back to companies because they do an Instagram post or do something on social media. And I don't think I've ever seen that engagement. I like, maybe you sell a bike or two, but you're telling me you deserve $10,000 worth of retail. They just gave you for free at the beginning of the year because you posted two, po two pictures of the bike on top of a mountain. Like I will be the first one to disagree. I mean, with the exception of dog knapsacks, I feel like you might've actually like given them the return on investment for, for those photos, but we'll get yeah, to that later. <laughs> but even then, that's my point is like, if you're going to try to sell something, put human in it, put yourself in that picture. Why are you on the or, bike? You know, really cute dogs. Or a dog. Um, and, and the funny part was for the first time he agreed. And it's very interesting when you find someone who is able to be critical about their own endeavors and goals. And he came from a very different, he came from professional triathlon, very different side of bikes. Um, was able to be critical of themselves before being critical of the sport. Cause it's easy to just point your finger and say X, Y, and Z does it wrong. Um, and so we started talking about, okay, so if you have these, if you want to talk the talk, how do you walk the walk? Like, how do you, how do you affect change? And right. This is, remember, this is during COVID. You start to realize that as professional athletes also selfishly, there's nothing to sell. There's a big question of what are companies going to do with athletes at the end of the year? And also just where does this go without, with unknown events? Like, where are we going to do what, what's going to happen? Um, and so I think it, at some point, Ryan might not agree, but I think it's somewhat started selfishly of like, how do we make sure we still have contracts next year in a way of just like, we do want to affect this change, but also we know that change will help us. Right. And that's, and that, which I, I think is the most permanent way of having a change happen to be totally honest. Yeah. And I will actually argue that very few people are capable of doing the like affecting change thing where there's no benefit to them whatsoever. I just don't think without a doubt. And I, and I think <laughs> that, and that's why I bring that up. Right. Cause it took me until the end of last year to realize that. Right. Because I, I think on this ride and as we started talking about it more, and as we started pitching it to companies, I didn't really believe it. I, I've gotten very good at pitching companies because I realized that was life or death for my, for me. Mm -hmm. But I also, I thought, and I guess this is getting ahead because I haven't explained what the project is, but it's very hard to actually find those people. Right. And so that, so that gets into what the project is. We wanted to find people who had never been on a bike before COVID really, like maybe an indoor bike, or maybe you commuted a little bit, but had never like aspired to ride their bike multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, we, we, we got to the last day of this ride of course of the first subject that comes up another 10 hours, you're like walking up mosquito pass and all that, like random things. And, and it's gorgeous. Also, I mean, this couple of passes in the Argentine pass, for example, coming out of Georgetown is just like, you cannot do it on anything other than your feet or a bicycle. Like there's little escree fields where you have to carry your bike down. It's just, it's pretty cool to do things that you can't, even a motorbike can't make it down. Um, so we're talking about how 
and eventually we got to the point of how do you actually make that change or affect that change is that professional athletes are not the people to do it. And that has been the genesis of the whole project is that I don't believe no matter how nice I am or how much I smile or wave, I'm not relatable. I am demoralizing to someone who just got on a bike if I pass them. And that's the reality. I'm not going to stop and talk to every single person and convince them that riding a bike is fun and they should, they can eventually ride as fast as me. It's because that's not worth it. It doesn't do anything for anybody. And so the thought came to, okay, but we do have the tools to do this. What if we gave those tools to new people and let them do the teaching? And that is where I didn't know if you could find those people because you have to find people that are okay to be on film, want to take on something that's pretty much impossible yet also be focused on passing that along to people and then also work their real job, have their real life beyond this. Um, so we picked a race. We said, Hey, okay. So we got to Crested Butte, finished the ride exhausted. And like everyone wants to hang out with family and Ryan and I are just around a table, just like talking about this. Like, what do I, so what is it? You know, this is end of July. And we're like, okay, like this is, this is now. Um, and so we picked a way. We're like, oh, Leadville's the biggest thing. Like that is, that's a name. How do you get people there? And just like, and as, as you can, you can see how this rolls, it just kept going and you start to find companies that fit with the project and don't, you know, whether it's a, a bike company, you know, it needs to be something that has a lower end bike. We don't want this to be something that is, oh, you need a $10,000 bike. Check this on. Mm-hmm. I first person to raise my hand and disagree. Um, and then also you want companies that will hopefully get this out to more people like the people we pick, which is hard. Like to find, if you look at Ryan's followers and my followers and any of my friends that I can convince to post this, everyone who follows them are people like me. Right. They're all bike racers or want to be bike racers who are already asking a shop for a deal. And that is where I am the first person to say, I don't think, I think it's very hard for an athlete to say they're selling things. And so you start to look at what athletes have done better. You can look at someone like Payson or Kate Courtney, who have like affected change beyond themselves, like actual change and pushed the sport further. And, um, we started bringing that to companies and the crazy part was they believed in it. I think part of it was they didn't have anything to sell. And this was a great story, but all of a sudden we realized, Hey, we're not going to pick people just in Colorado. We're going to pick people around the U S we're going to open this to the whole U S so we're like, okay, how are we going to do that? So we're like, oh, well, let's go to Leadville and like interview the people who started it, uh, Ken and Mary Lee. So we do that. That was eye-opening because it almost felt like they were like, you're crazy. This is not this. You are crazy. This story isn't that. Like, we wanted like a, oh my God, situ- like reaction. We did not get that from either of them. They're like, yeah, it's going to be tough. They can do it. It's like, okay, thanks, Ken. Thanks, Merrily. See you later. I think it's because they also have a hundred mile running event oh. and like they understand what that looks like too. And they're just hardened people. And they they've seen just... what, 30 years of Leadville with people who yeah. looked like they couldn't do it coming through. Like they know they've been watching people come through longer than you've been alive. Seriously. <laughs> and so that was the thing. So, and then once we had companies on board, it was, you know, how do we do this? And we ended up, and I think that's that moment that companies believed in it. I still was just skeptical of like, how do you find those people? Cause that's very difficult. Um, we made a video kind of announcing what we were doing. Um, and it was incredible. It was open for three weeks and 1200 people put in applications just like, 
minutes and hours of their time. Just like, I mean, we had videos that were half an hour long, just like talking about themselves and why this affected them. And it, that was the moment like watching because at first we're like, oh, okay, we'll get, we'll get a couple of applications. But we had to like, it was hours of each night watching videos, right? Like, and you realize very quickly that like this steps beyond cycling, like I hope to do. And also was something that could affect positive change in the sport beyond myself, which quickly diminished that selfish part of it. And you'd realize like, this is way cooler than anything I imagined riding up these passes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was the genesis of it it's from the ground up. It's going into its second season and it's, we, there wasn't supposed to be a first season, let alone a second season. And it's, it's, it's constantly eye-opening to me and absolutely the most rewarding thing that I'm, I'm doing. And this is a very hard thing, but I would without a doubt, give up my career to continue that because it's something really special, right? I think the two do go hand in hand and that's kind of special. Like as we probably talk about like I race unbound and the, the three we have for from the ground up are also racing unbound this year and like I race Leadville and they race Leadville. Um, but it's, it's just cool to see like the three from season one just affect people themselves, mm-hmm. teach people and like the actual Genesis. I don't think the Genesis of what people talk about happens very often. And like literally what we talked about the end of July, going to Crested Butte, amateur teaching amateurs is actually what's happening. And it constantly blows my mind. Mm-hmm. No, I love it. Um, and you mentioned seasons. So let's also just add for the, the listeners here. You also like, in addition to getting these people to these races, you also created all of these videos around it that are sort of then going forward. And, you know, hopefully then it's that amateurs teaching amateurs. So there's sort of the two levels to the whole project, right? The, the in-person yep. and then the actual like video coverage. Yeah. Um, so- yeah. So it's last year was five episodes. This year's trying to be six. So, nice. I mean, it's, and it's a very weird cross between reality TV and education. I love gotta it. Got to get some crying in there, but also let's learn how to change a tire. Perfect. Perfect. Possibly both at the same time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most likely both Especially at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. You just alluded to it and I wanted to touch on this balancing your racing with this project. I mean, no, normally we're talking to people who uh, you know, our listeners, generally speaking, if they're going to Leadville, that's their vacation. That's their like escape from work for you. It's actually like now it's somehow the biggest work week of the year, not just because you're racing it and it's a huge deal, but because this is this project you've been working on for a year and it's a huge deal. How do you, how do you do both? How do you account for both? Especially, uh, you know, results matter, right? It's part of the lifetime Grand Prix series. Yeah. Uh, so the overall results matter. Uh, and you have two of the six races where you're doing double yeah. duty. Yeah. I guess I'll start with last year. I didn't understand how much it would take out of me. Um, I've been proud to say that uh, the same thing that you and I see like partners and sponsors see as well, right. Where it's not a detriment. Like if I am more tired, it's worth what's coming out of it on the other side. If I'm not top five. If I'm just top 10, like mm-hmm. it's hard for me to quantify as an athlete because if I hate that, I'm not in it to finish, you know, where, where I occasionally did, but I I'll be the first one to say Leadville was 125% the hardest race I did the entire year last year. Like I was up until midnight helping people do things that like for three days in a row, working 15 hour days, right. Harder than this little white cyclist has ever worked in his life trying to, you know, just help and figure things out and, you know, 
write STEM sheets for the first time and talk about nutrition and like all these things that you don't want to overwhelm them with. And they're first getting on a bike or first learning how to train, but you realize like you don't want them out there by themselves. And it's this, yeah. I mean, I, I got into Leadville and literally in the first 10 minutes, I was like, this is going to be a day. This is wow. Um, so I'd like to say that I've alleviated some of that and you learn from, from doing it once. Um, but yeah, I'm still, I still go in with the ex- expectation and understanding that from the ground up is the priority up until I touch the start line. And then it's just give what you have, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you can limit, limit things and have people help in different ways that make my life easier to race, but it's in the end, you, you make a choice at the beginning of the year when you do this thing and dedicate yourself to helping someone, helping people. It's not, it's more than just like more than just unbound in Leadville. It's the encompassing group of people taking on those races and not just myself. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now from like the mental, mental standpoint, do you have any um, ways that you've figured out from like when you're on the start line, like shutting all of the other noise out and just focusing on going, or is this still something you're struggling with? No, I mean, that's one thing that I think is always, I've always been pretty good at. It's just compartmentalization. Like I've never struggled to put things into, into like little pockets and say, that's for later. Um, mm-hmm. And even like we started talking before we did this podcast, right? Like my list making and everything I have, like I, I, when I go to a race, get very selfish, right? Like this, the, this Monday to, to today, today is what Wednesday has been that shit. But when I fly to race this weekend, when I fly on Thursday, I'm a selfish athlete and I'm done doing anything and answering emails and doing stuff that I should probably be doing. And then when I get back, I'll deal with the consequences of that. And maybe that's not the most healthy way to do it, but it's my way of compartmentalizing and saying, Hey, I'm focusing on this thing that I'm also dedicated to. And is the reason I'm paid Yeah, and I can go with the, Oh, we want to do a photo shoot here after. Yeah. Yeah. Even if that's important, it's when is the timing of that importance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So this season, I mean, you're, you're racing this weekend and then we're only like a couple weeks out from the lifetime racing starting even just the lifetime series alone is a lot, right? Like none of the races are short and easy. Uh, they're all long and hard. How are you handling sort of that? Like recover, get back to training, recover, get back, race, get back to training, recover. It, it, how is that balance going to happen throughout the season? Yeah, I think I, I'm looking at it a little differently than a lot of people. I mean, one thing the world tour does is just give you this insane training load. Like, I don't think it makes you stronger per se, but it's just a couple of years of 30,000 kilometers in your legs, which cycling as with most endurance sports is a compounding, like no matter what you do, if you ride your bike without a coach from age 15 to age 20, you're going to be stronger. It's not a question, right? You learn different things. You pick things up. Um, so I think knowing that like this worked for me last year was just putting a lot in up until unbound. Um, and having these massive weeks and big amounts of training, I don't think I've done maybe, I guess I delivered bikes. I had five days off after camp, but pretty much every week has been north of 20 hours. Um, most of north of 25 and just taking in that endurance. And then after unbound sharpening specifically for each race saying, okay, here, now I'm racing this race. I need to focus on little, little climbs. Now I'm racing that race. I need to focus on longer climbs. Now I'm racing a mountain bike race and you just need to focus on switching back and forth. Um, 
the hardest part of that is going to be sea otter just because it comes so early. It's the first event. No one else would think about. And it's before that unbound, it sets a precedent that I'd rather not set early on. But, um, other than that, it's like, it's that same, like take a break, take a tiny recovery, be fresh ish for sea otter. I, I weirdly race better when I'm a little fatigued. So nothing too crazy. So I'm not training through sea otter, but the minute sea otter is done, it's just, it's back on the gas and getting to unbound. And then I feel like the season kind of sets up for me after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you feel about some of the, some racers right now? It feels like they're racing like literally every weekend and like hundred milers every weekend. Yeah. I don't know many, yes. No I don't know <laughs> listeners you have. I disagree. I, I do. I don't understand. I, I, I've asked my friends, like, what are you doing? Like, I don't think pe- many people understand what it is to have races you're supposedly peaking for once every single month, all the way to October. Like, I have been purposely trying to hold myself back because it is a long season. And I, and I finished my season with Iceman every year. And that's no beginning of November, which is two weeks after big sugar was the last lifetime grand prix, but it's just, it's a long season of, you can't mess up. It's not like you just get to be like, Oh, that race. I don't want to count. Like it counts. Like, and let alone, we all know how likely it is to have a mechanical over six races. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting to me and I might be the one looking stupid at the end of this, but it's, I, I, for me, I'm happy. I can just focus on training, focus on what I can do. And then as you get into the races, you can reevaluate each time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Never go is, back on training. Yeah. And this is one of the weirder, this is the first time the series has been run and it's kind of a weird setup where it's actually over the span of like eight months. Yeah there's there or maybe not eight like six or seven like no other season is like quite that long there's usually like some dips in the middle or something like that but like this is just like boom 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 and then that's not even counting if we're like gonna throw in gravel worlds or like any of these other big road nationals any of the other stuff so yeah and that's the crazy thing is like it's just it's figuring out those things and how it affects you i mean i I've always thought that most people in the world tour are overtrained, but you kind of have to be because you have to always just be strong period. doesn't matter if you're peaking or not, mm-hmm. just be strong and do your work. Otherwise you won't even make it through the races. The weird part about this is it's not like you can pick periods. You kind of have to just be consistent the entire year. Mm-hmm. The winner of the grand prix will definitely win multiple events, but I think third, fourth, fifth is going to be people who are just there constantly. Yep. Every single race, right? Seventh, sixth, a third, like, and it's, it's just, it's also, I like, it's so different going mm-hmm. from 10,000 feet in Leadville and pretty much whoever's the best watts per kilo at altitude to, I don't know, you name it unbound where yeah. a flat tire in the first 10 miles can ruin your race is yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Because this is my favorite topic to talk with you about. We're talking about lists. Um, what, uh, what are you keeping organized right now? And let's just kind of briefly also touch on like, why, why list making? Why do I love this topic so much with you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've always loved organization in some ways. I sometimes wouldn't consider myself a very organized person. I would like to consider myself. I'm a weird 
weirdly OCD about it, but if I can't completely clean, the reason I wouldn't consider myself fully organized, a fully organized person is what if I can't fully put everything away, I will leave it in a mess. And then when I have time, I will fully put it away. Okay. This is where you and I are the exact same. And I get yelled at by, by Peter all the time for it. (laughs) I can't handle mess in drawers. It needs to just all be out and then filed away beautifully. It's way worse when you just hide shit. That doesn't Exactly. Thank you. You just, you, you physically know it's hidden and it's sloppy and I'd rather see it and be like, I need to fix that. Yeah, exactly. And you just can't find your stuff as you're trying to get ready for rides or whatever. And you know, the more organized all the drawers are, the easier it is to get out the door. So yeah, no, I always have a, I always have a running list. And then usually off that multiple lists, the running list is always like in the middle is always things I need to do. You know, like what do we have now? Like invest in Roth IRA, organize garage, pack for the coming race. Uh, and then I have to ship a couple things out, right? Random like to do's. Mm-hmm. On either side of that are usually things that I don't want forgotten. Like either like, hey, I need to follow up with these people or companies. I haven't heard back from them or I wanted to reach out to them in the first place. And the other side is things I need to not do, but um, maybe it's order things or things that don't direct, directly affect me. Like, oh, hey, they need cassette tools for, from all the from the ground up people. Like it's not my problem, but I need to make sure it gets done right. in, a, in a different way. And then off of that, you can imagine there's just other lists of like, okay, so what I need to order for those people? What is my packing list for the coming race? And those are all lists themselves. Or like, mm-hmm. hey, I need to invoice people. Who do I need to invoice? But that can't be on the original list. So then it's like list 1A and that's on the next page, right? And then that next page has a, a list, a smaller list of like, need to invoice X, Y, and Z. Okay. And then you can cross that off and then you can cross the original one off the first list. I Um, love that because just yesterday we were walking DW and Peter looks at me, he goes, should I bullet journal? And then he paused and he's like, also, what is bullet journaling? (laughs) So he's been looking it up and today he just got really frustrated with the like index concept. So I think like the one A would really like just completely throw him off, but I love it. I love it so much. Um, you, you just mentioned packing lists and I literally just posted about creating, you know, your multiple packing lists for like different <laughs> events. So you don't have to, Willie agrees. Uh, so you don't have to like redo them every single time you race. I assume that you have these. I do. Although being an athlete that has been, that likes to be very prepared <laughs> Thank you, Willie. You're, you're coming. Don't worry. You're on the packing list. Uh, <laughs> I don't like having a list because I don't want to, I will go back and like, once I have a list, look at one to see if I miss things, but I like to be forced to think about what's the weather at this race. What bike am I bringing? Like, cause all that changes everything, right? Like when you're a privateer, my packing list also includes parts and pieces that can break on my bike. And that changes from 11 to 12 speed, whether it's gravel or mountain bike or the tires that I'm bringing. So I really don't run off the same list and I'm try to constantly change. I mean, I could have a list that just said t-shirts, shorts, jerseys, and bibs, right. And then add on to it. But I like just starting over from scratch each time and then slowly adding on to it. And I'm also the person that like, that's the only time my notepad comes up to bed with me is when I have a packing list. Cause I feel like you remember things right in bed. It's so nice to just be like, yep, that, yep, that while you're like falling asleep and you're like half writing and you get up in the morning, you're like, those five make sense. That one does not make any sense at all, but that's okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I don't know. It, it's hard. Cause it's just, I think it just depends on where you're going and what you're doing and mm-hmm. what you're either sending ahead of you or have there, right? Like this race I'm going to in Michigan, I'm going to my parents' house. I know what I have at the house. I know there's a pump there. I know like right. makes some things easier and I'm not going to bring access for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's easy to forget things if you don't. So usually I like make a list cross-reference and then continue on my, on my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have like many different ones, more of like an Excel sheet where it's like, you know, we have like the basics for like running, but then we also have like additional for like this kind of weather consideration, additional for this kind of situation, you know, That's same smart. with cycling, like the different disciplines, the different weather situations. Um, yeah. So I think I'm, my issue is I, and we've talked about this. I like the physical pad so much. Oh, I know. And this and is, like, this is where you and I differ. I, I, I love it. I love it so much, but I can't do it. <laughs> I would literally like, if you gave me your packing list, I'd be like, wow, Molly, that's great. And I would read the list and write down everything it says onto a pad, even though I have the Excel spreadsheet in front of me. Yep. So. Yeah. Although actually we've, we've found a happy medium to the, uh, physical list, but digital as well. Um, it's called, uh, it's rocket book and it's actually like pen and pad, but then you can actually scan the pages and then it like, it transcribes, it sends it to to your Evernote. So you save everything. And then you can actually wipe the pages off, like Hmm. wipe them clean and like, boom. So you're not like, Cause I would travel with notebooks and then I'd end up, you know, leaving them places or like, you know, or just like, you know, you fill it up and now you have no papers and I need another notebook. Well, I never without with, if I'm within <laughs> 10 pages of the end, I have another yellow ruled notebook coming. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So no, I've, been, I've been liking that. That's been nice. That's good. Yeah, that's and it hard. does, it transcribes it too. So then I have the digital version of it. Yeah. So that's helpful. Um, okay. So that's, that's super nerdy. Um, yeah. the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, judging by your Instagram, you're kind of constantly training with people, you're training with dogs, you're training with videographers. Um, how are you balancing sort of the, the actual training with the Instagraminess of it? Because I know that's, that's a very tricky thing for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I've had this conversation a lot and I even kind of alluded to it, right. Is how, how much I think it affects or doesn't affect. Um, I think we're seeing social media have a more positive effect now more than ever where people are trying to be real. Mm -hmm. Um, I've tried to remind myself of that. Like I had somebody ask me the other day, like, Oh, there's a portion like after two summer, I had all this content and we're like, Oh, wow. Like three, three willy reels in two weeks. Like I first I was kind of like, yeah, I don't disagree. And then I was like, I don't really care. Like I enjoy it. It's my fucking Instagram. Like, excuse my, my friend, like I, this is what I want to post. Um, so it's tricky. Social media is tricky. Um, and I think you are trying to appease when you are a professional athlete, you do have rules. You do have things that are expected. Um, I would say one of my biggest things going into a company, my biggest red flags is if there is a set number of posts I have to do. I will very honestly probably not sign that contract mm-hmm. because I will always post about something that I'm using in my daily life and you will get whatever you think you're getting out of social media. But if you're going to write me because I didn't do the three amount of posts per month or week that you expected and didn't tag you correctly, then it's probably not organic to begin with. And we're not going to sell anything together as it is. Yeah. Um, that's the easy answer. I think forcing it is really hard. Um, I've been very lucky that, so Avery Stum, my photographer, videographer, and I, my sounds bad, but like, we've been great friends. He slid into my DMS way back when, 
um, from Michigan also ended up very randomly um, by coincidence moving out to Boulder at the same time as me and just continued that relationship of just, we just enjoy going out and just seeing what we get. And that Mm -hmm. takes both sides of it, if that makes sense. Like I very much cherish that relationship and see a lot of value and interest in that. Um, and that like, he's willing to go out for six hours in the car and just shoot for fun and see what happens. And also as an athlete, I understand that like, it's okay to turn around and then go do a loop again for Avery. Right. Like we're all just having fun and riding bikes and like, it's not going to affect my ride. If I do it a little bit up and down and stop a couple of times for 30 seconds, instead of just riding consistently, I'm still going to be fine. Yeah. It's funny. I'm I'm always telling junior racers. I'm like, forget being friends with other bike racers, make friends with photographers. That's going to be your move. (laughs) Avery is everyone talks about what Willie is. Willie is only known because of Avery. Avery Mm -hmm. takes these incredible shots and his relationship even with Willie is almost what makes it happen, right? Like we'll be descending a 45 minute descent and Avery's off perched on the side of a rock in the pissing rain. And somehow this dog will look at him and you're like, what the heck? How is that possible? Um, But it's, it's, it's a relationship that's really special. Something that we're like really diving into this year is like not, so we're doing 12 videos this year together that are going on YouTube. But the goal, it's like, I was like, I don't care if we have zero in-race footage. I want to talk about the relationship we have together, what it takes to get content done for companies that you work with and how awkward and odd it can be to get that shit. It's not like, I feel like sometimes people are like, oh yeah, I want to hire a photographer and just like, I'm going to go do my ride and they just get the photos. I'm like, that's not how this shit happens. It's not, you need to be willing to just uproot your day to get shots that are incredible. And there's, I wouldn't say two thirds, but there's almost half 50% of the time we go out where most of it is garbage, Mm -hmm. not special, nothing. And you have to be okay with that. Right. And so, so one of the things that you talk about, like what I think I can do that's interesting is I want to tell that story. And it's taken a while to convince Avery that what he does behind the camera is also interesting, but we're interesting. It's, it blows my mind. I was like, dude, this is cool to me. And I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing behind the camera. And it's cool to me. And I was like, cycling and photographer videographers fit in this weird way of like, we're always trying to make our bikes faster. They're always trying to make their cameras more resilient or better in weird ways and change settings. And it's really cool to mash those together. Right. Like we just did like it's, I just thought about like, what tire pressure are you running? Is like, what F stop are you running? Yep. It's, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly like we're filming, we were filming a, a, a bike video the other day or a couple weeks ago in Tucson. And like, he's filming me with a GoPro on top of his camera, but also has a GoPro in the car. And the best footage of all of it is the GoPro in the car, watching all of us capturing the audio of the driver and him communicating with the driver and how, how batshit those circumstances are where you have some dually diesel truck trying to pass and you're trying to film this elegant bike in the midst of absolute chaos. Hazards on, pull left, pull right. No, move right. Go slower, go faster. Lexi, no you, no you. Like it's, and then a picture comes out of it and you're like, the, the end goal of that was Instagram? Wait, what? Right? Like that's, And so 
I mean, we're doing the only the video he's finalized right now is 24 hours of old plebo. We did a video just trying to start doing this. Like I was like, Avery, I want half of this to be about what you're doing. It's obviously about the race because that's what we are, but how do we like encompass this relationship? And it's, I was blown away. Like, it's so cool to see that come and hopefully that education grow. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. <laughs> no, I think, and I think that's fascinating for a lot of people who have been watching, you know, hundreds or thousands of these cyclist videos over the years to actually see sort of like how, how it does come together is just so interesting. Like when I was, um, I was managing Aspire Racing, so Jeremy Powers team, and he had behind the barriers. He was one of the first yep. cyclists to be doing yep. that. Um, and we brought it back for his last season of racing or last two seasons of racing. So I got to be there watching, you know, how all of this footage gets filmed to make 10 minute clips. And it is so much like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it's. it's yeah. Really and cool. I think the interesting part, and that's also what I've tried to like convince partners of this year is how valuable that can be for them. Like not hiring you see this with big, big, um, car companies and things like that. And I've even tried to start pitching this beyond myself to like the Carhartt and Ford and companies that are outside of cycling, but that models and photographers, whatever it may be outside of each niche will devalue what you're trying to sell or do, right? Like you need people who understand what's going on. I need Avery to want to ride his bike and enjoy what we're doing. I need. And so when you go to when a partner, someone asks for a photo or a video, it's an opportunity to go have fun and do that. Right. And say, Hey, at the beginning of the year, when I signed my contract and asked for that amount of content budget, this is why. And I will very easily satisfy this for all of you. And it's not on any one person because all of you have put this content budget in a pot that I can give to my friend who's already going to be doing this for me. Mm-hmm. And everyone's happy because on a whim, when you say, Hey, in 24 hours, I need a photo. I can do it because it's yeah. a friend. I say, Hey, Avery, you want to come over for dinner and go shoot that thing in the dark outside of my house? He's up for it. Right. Hey, Avery, you want to meet on top of the mountain at five in the morning for sunrise? He's up for it. And that I think is you're not faking it. You're not, Hey, Oh, I want 10 grand instead of 15. I want one grand instead of three. It's not about money. It's just about the beauty of what's going on and relationships between me and partners and the, successfulness of that straight up being how much money is made versus how much they give me. But beyond that, what value you can give to them in a sense of they don't have to outside hire anything that might not understand what they're looking for. I know what they're looking for because they hired me and I can relay that to a friend who understands what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that I think it's not just reaching out on Facebook and finding a photographer, right? It's finding that relationship and someone who wants to be involved in the chaos that is more than I don't know. I, I just, it's the only way it can be done in right now, but I don't understand day rate is so backwards because you don't know what a day is going to be. A day might be two hours and you get what you need. A day might be three days and it takes you that much to get what you need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Before we, before we wrap up here, I would be remiss if I did not ask about riding with the dog. With Willie. Um, with Willie. Um, obviously, our listeners understand that I also have a miniature dachshund. Um, they they have they a mutual friend. They haven't met, but they have a mutual friend. Yeah. <laughs> They've met by snoot touch. Exactly. Yeah. So they're like one step removed. It's going to happen. It's going to be great. Um, but how do you, how do you keep Willie so chill in the pack? Like, what's what's the secret? How how do you keep him calm at races? DW is a bit of a dick, so we're looking for any help we can get. <laughs> 
no, I really just chill. I don't have an answer. Like the only, so the reason I'm bringing back to this race is because our, my friends got a dachshund from the same breeder. That's very similar to Willie's a year younger. Willie's theoretically his uncle, which is weird. We don't talk about it, but they're best friends. And that one is definitely a day. Like people will be like, Oh, Willie. And this one will like snap at you. True, true dachshund form, like short hair. Yep. Form. yep. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, Willie's just always, and I think one of the things is just like it started as he just views the backpack as the way to stay with his family, right? Mm-hmm. Constantly. Like he loves that. Any, any dog, any dog owner knows that like the loyalty is just what it is. And so if he associates that with having fun, he'll do it and he'll just relax. And he, I mean, he is relaxed. There's countless times where there's video and photo evidence and just pull out a sleep in the backpack, right? Like you cannot tell me a dog doesn't like something if he's just falling asleep inside of it. I think he's okay. Oh yeah. Um, well, it makes perfect sense, right? Like they love being burritoed. And this, this particular backpack we're talking about is basically just putting the dog in a burrito where his head is like on your shoulder. Especially when you put the sleeping bag insert in. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a burrito. Um, but no, he loves it. It's, it's been learning like little things like, oh, like he starts to shiver if it's windy. So like now we have a little bonnet for him. He hates it, but you know, like little things, but he also like, he will take a ride almost every time. And there's, there's days where I like, we, where he rides like multiple hours day after day and we get to the end of the week and I can just tell he's like, yeah, I'm going to sleep today. And like, I'll call him once and he'll just be like, he purposely won't come to see the backpack because if he sees the backpack, he knows he's going to go. Um, but I don't know. He's just chill. I mean, I think it just, it started with just like me riding beside Sophie when she ran. And I think it was like a chill thing. Mm-hmm. And then it just escalated more and more, but he never has an issue with it. I think there's times where he's like, yeah, I'm ready to be done, but he's never, never peed on me or anything. That, that would be the <laughs> ultimate, like I'm done with you. Yeah. So win. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't get peed on crushing yeah. it. Um, <laughs> no, that, no, that makes sense. I mean, DW loves his front pack for me. He's adjusting yeah. the backpack on Peter, but on me, he doesn't like it. Cause he wants to be able to like pop up and like yeah. be in my face. Huh. Um, yeah. I'm his mom. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, and also you probably know this also, but just like the, the joy you can see in people when you pass is also something I really love. Like I can literally get yelled at by someone for riding too fast on a bike path they're walking on. And two seconds later, they're yelling, Oh, come back. I want to see your dog. Like it, it, yeah. Like it just, it makes life more fun on a bike. Bicycling is already hard and you literally have cars giving more space, taking more time, just being, wanting to see the dog taking pictures because there's a dog in a bag. It's so simple. And yet it's so great. Everyone's happy all the time, whether it's people you're riding with people driving by people walking by, it's just happiness. And if you don't smile, then I hate you. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> then you're a terrible human. Um, okay. You don't understand dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Two questions. One, where can everyone find you on the interwebs and two, uh, and also Willie. And then two, where can people see Willie in real life? This, this racing season, what's he coming to? Almost every race. Um, my name, Lexi Romulan at Alexi Romulan for pretty much everything. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, not a TikTok guy. Um, there will be a YouTube with Alexi and Avery, which will be cool. Um, and then Willie will be at almost everything. Willie's coming to 
this weekend for me to Michigan. He's coming to Sea Otter. Um, then mom gets back, so we'll have to see. But uh, he will probably come to Belgian Wolf Ride, California. Um, unbound's a question, but then for sure he'll be at Leadville, anything in Colorado. Um, it's hard, yeah. Shaquamig and 40 he'll be at. It's at home, kind of at home. Um, he will be at most places. Yeah. So if anyone is at any of these big events, just look for the adorable English cream miniature dachshund. Know that Peter is very jealous of him because that's actually the coloring he wanted. Uh, but we ended up with our, our black dachshund, which works out better from an aesthetic perspective for me anyway. So <laughs> it all it all works out. <laughs> Alexi, thank you so much for chatting. This was so much fun. It's always great catching up. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Molly. It was awesome. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week. <laughs>